This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Barbara Rosenwein, Professor Emerita at Loyola University of Chicago, to talk about her new book, Love, A History in Five Fantasies, out this year, 2021, with Palady Press. Hello, Barbara, and welcome to the program. Hello, Jana, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Uh, Wonderful. Thanks for joining me. I'm very excited to talk to you. So how are you this morning? Are you in Chicago? I'm near Chicago. I'm in the uh, uh, neighborhood of Evanston, uh, which is uh, a stone's throw from Chicago. I think most of our audience is probably aware of uh, of Evanston, home of another fine school. Uh, yeah. It is, yes. yes. So, Western is in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> A library were in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be nice, but that's not so bad. And tell me, how's Chicago this morning? How's it going? It's actually very sunny and getting warmer. And by Thursday, it might even be in the sixties, which would be oh somewhere around eighteen degrees centigrade. Yeah, that's uh, you know it's apocalyptic this climate change, but it does make for nice November if- afternoons. Yes. Uh, well, we shall see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's. It's also yeah that that kind of that particular. I mean, weather's never reliable, but that particular place is a bit sketchy. <laughs> All right. So, book wise, interview wise, turning from the ever interesting weather to the actual reason we're here. Uh, so my first job when I when I interview is always to try to situate the current work in your the author's academic and intellectual trajectory, and so that's what I'm on about now. But I feel like we need to back up a bit, and I want to talk about your career as a whole as this beautiful demonstration of how an academic and how an intellectual can grow and develop if they get space, support, and can just are left to do what they want to do. Thank you. I, um, I, I've been very lucky. Um, I mean, I started out as a medievalist, and I uh, taught many, many classes on medieval history. And um, my own specialization was medieval monasticism, and particularly the monks of Cluny. But the monks of Cluny present uh, as to all historical questions, some really, really interesting, um, deep issues. And one of them for me was why? Why did these monks spend 
all of their time or nearly all of their time in the church praying. Other monks spend a lot of time in the church praying, but not all of their time. (laughs) So I really began to uh, get interested in the whys. Of course, throughout my life, I've always been interested in whys. Uh, Most of us are from about the age of three. Uh, And um, then uh, I uh, was chairing a session uh, at the American Historical Association that had nothing to do with medieval monasticism, but rather was uh, about the social construction of anger in the Middle Ages. At that time, I had no idea what social constructionism was. I'm, I'm telling you secret here. Uh, and, uh, uh, but as I listened to the conversation and the papers and the commentary afterwards, I realized this is a field of enormous fascination that I really would like to get into. And as you say, I was lucky. My institution let me do it. My institution didn't care. I wanted to uh, talk about uh, medieval emotions. Fine. Wanted to give courses on medieval emotions. Fine. That led me to want to think about the history of emotions in general. And again, I was able to pursue that as as I wished. And then now, you know, I'm retired, so I get to do whatever I want. <laughs> and so um, I, I embarked first on... Um, this, most of my work was on complexes of emotions in the Middle Ages, and then I, I moved out a little bit into the ancient world on one end of the Middle Ages and into the early modern period on the other. And what I was interested in talking about varieties of what I call emotional communities in these periods. That is, you cannot generalize a whole society is angry or violent, or you've got different groups of that um, value different emotions, or even the same emotions differently, even at the same time. And that kind of coexistence of different emotional communities, valuations of emotions, expressions of emotions. We all know that uh, there are some people who express their um, emotions more volubly than others, and we may feel comfortable with those people or less comfortable with them. And in a way, that uh, gives uh, you an idea of what I mean by emotional communities where people agree more or less on the emotions that they want to express, the ways that they express them, and the values that they attach to various emotions. Anyway, um, by the time I retired, I felt I was ready to undertake a really um, larger arc of historical studies And um, I chose for that 
not emotional communities in general, just would be a 9,000-page book, but rather one emotion. uh, I chose anger and wrote a book about anger, the conflicted history of an emotion, and that took me from the Buddha to Twitter. And then, (laughs) only then, did I feel ready to start with love, um, and love turned out to be the most difficult um, topic I'd ever tried to work on. And I spent so many, uh, so much, so much time and, uh, trashed so many different outlines for this book <laughs> that, uh, I, I, I almost gave up on it. And it was in the process of giving up on it that, uh, I realized, well, but there are certain themes, thir- certain memes, certain stories that just keep coming up over and over again in all of my reading. Can I organize these to come up with a history of love? Not telling people what love is, but telling myself and others what love has been, what it has meant, how it has been somehow shaped and managed, at least within the Western tradition. I'd love to know other traditions, but I lack the languages, I lack the expertise, but I'm comfortable with uh, Western, many Western languages, uh, not all of them, of course, and uh, and the whole arc of Western history. So that's what the book really takes up. And um, uh, so uh, maybe I I've gone too far with your question, but anyway, um, that's how it uh, first uh, institutional support, and then the sense of uh, that I can go where I want to go. No, that is exactly what I wanted. That's it. That's exactly where I wanted this to go. And that is, that's wonderful. That is such a great story, right? Because there are a lot of, uh, a lot of colleagues who don't get to do that, right? For whatever reason, institutional support, they're, they're boxed, they're scared. I think it's also, I mean, this is, it is scary to take on a new field and a, a whole new historiography. And you went, I mean, you start as a medievalist, medievalist, right? Rhinoceros bound, Cluny, and like, you've got this. You are a medievalist. And then you're like, and then, hmm, how about emotion? Which is this whole new historiography, a whole new set of methodologies, as it turns out, new languages. Um, I mean, that's really brave as well. Thanks. It's fun too. Yeah. And when, when I... I just the other day I was um, looking at the work of a, a very respected colleague, um, and that colleague had had started with one topic and was still writing about that topic. And I thought, how can how can he do that? How can he stand to do that? But on the other hand, um, it, it every topic does unfold with infinite, infinite mm-hmm. uh, new uh, aspects. And so I do understand uh, 
um, and it isn't uh, it isn't really a mystery. Um, that every topic, if you get into it, is an infinity of topics. So, yeah, and and you know those medievalists, like we have, we I'm sure we have friends in common who you know they 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 wrote their books, and you look at the titles, and you're like, yeah, these you've just written the same book three or four times here, or seven or ten, but they're not, of course, the same books at all. They're not. They're wonderful. Um, <laughs> But it is, and I think I admire that. I am, I admire the the ability to bore deeply into a topic. Yeah, as so do to. I. So do I. But I, I think um, after a while, the monks of Cluny began to, dare I say, bore me a little. <laughs> and so uh, it was time to move. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure there were moments when you were uh, with anger, for sure. And then with love that you, we, you were taken back at least in spirit to your monks. The- yeah. Oh yes. As a matter of fact, uh, anger has a whole section on monastic cursing, which is both angry and uh, void of anger. It's a very interesting way of handling um, one's uh, opposition to enemies it really so yes definitely definitely and in um uh, the love book of course the monks i mean the monks not so much the cluniacs but the cistercians mm-hmm. are obsessed with love erotic um imagery of love for god so the Song of Songs becomes Cistercian mm-hmm. monks, 12th century monks, who really oppose the Cluniacs, but also are very much like the Cluniacs. Uh, they uh, elaborate a whole um, affective um, uh, monastic life, dwelling upon the feelings of the individual worshiper, the monk for Christ. And uh, their abbot, um, St. Bernard, uh, wrote numerous, numerous sermons Mm -hmm. that we can all uh, explore in English, in Dutch, in any language you like, because they're all translated, but originally in Latin, um, to uh, explore the Song of Songs as the longing of the soul for God, the longing of the believer for Christ, and he glories in the erotic and sensual possibilities of that love. So I think this takes us to an understand like I, this place, because you, you select five persistent narratives of love, and I want to get to that. But, um, and you know, there's this, you certainly, this is a, a narrative of love that makes some sense, but I want to talk about this process too, before we get there, where you say, I'm quoting here, you begin to see some of the memes coalesce in, and, and so what they're coalescing into stories into, you call them into ultimately fantasies. What is, how does this happen? What does that mean? Well, uh, psychologists are, uh, beginning to talk about this, the importance of narratives that we have to organize 
the uh, understanding of the feelings that we have. Normally, the psychologists talk about the narratives that we have deriving from our own lives, our parents, how they brought us up, our uh, school um, experiences, um, our love experiences. We make sense of all of these experiences by by telling ourselves stories. What I began to see is that the process is not just intimate like that, but that we ourselves draw on cultural narratives that we see on television, that we hear on radio, that we read about in books, that we learn about in school, and that our friends tell us about, that we hear in songs that we listen to, music, um, that we look at art. All of these things uh, are part of our lives. It's not just our parents who bring us up. It's our culture as well. And some of us may be more uh, immersed in uh, more profound elements of that culture, but we're all part of uh, the culture and we pick and choose from it what makes sense for us. And so uh, I was uh, interested in... um, adding to what the psychologists say about the importance of fantasies and narratives in the way we organize our feelings and our understanding of who we are, our own identity, I wanted to add to that um, also the legacy of history, Um, not just dates and facts, in fact, very few dates and facts, but the uh, the the memes that have come up to us, the stories that have come up to us via all the media that we have at our disposal today, and um, not just books, of course, but as I say, television mm-hmm. and radio, and and so on, um, and uh, so that's where the idea came from. Mm-hmm. Right. So there, and then you, so we see storytelling as a means of of not just um, de- reporting, not just reminding us, but in fact of creating. Absolutely. That's a really good way to put it. We we tell ourselves stories, but as we do that, we do change them. And we know that that's true of oral stories. We know that, for example, the epic of Sunjata, uh, you know, from Mali, um, is told in so many different ways by the various oral uh, reporters of it, the the recorders of it, the singers of it. We know that Homer must have started out that way, Uh, although 
what has come down to us is one Homer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we do that. We are our own Homers. Um, and we do that uh, in our lives with telling ourselves stories, telling our children stories, telling our friends stories, and telling, well, whom, I mean, it is a social process, but it's also an internal process as we make sense of what's happening to us. I find that fascinating, that we use these stories we have to explain to ourselves what's going on. And then when we relate that to our friends, families, loved ones, soon-to-be exes, we're, we're using these stories to demonstrate it, to, to, to explain what we mean, and then just tweaking the meaning a little or reaffirming it, right? That's so fascinating. Yeah, because we each bring something individual. Uh, our upbringing, no one's upbringing is exactly the same. Even twins will say that I happen to have twins, Frank and Jessica, we're twins, my kids, and they will tell you entirely different stories about their upbringing and um, about their schooling, about their friendships, uh, because no one experiences even the same context in exactly the same way. That's the marvelous thing about uh, individuality, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And then how we translate that into a society, which is pretty cool. Okay, so you coalesce, you coalesce, these memes coalesced for you around five different ideas. Yeah, like-mindedness, transcendence, obligation, obsession, and insatiability. And none of these were what I was expecting. But when I opened this book, what will these five fantasies be? I did not this was fabulous and brand new and I found it so exciting. Is this what you expected? It, I mean, well, no, as I told you, I trashed a million outlines. I, uh, but I knew that I wanted to talk about different kinds of loves and, uh, what I came to realize as I thought about it was that, for example, like-mindedness does largely, not entirely, but largely compass the love involved in friendships, whereas obligation is more the issue, the constant refrain of long-term relationships. Insatiability, on the contrary, yeah. is, uh, is, it's about cruising. And, um, and in a way, the insatiability is a little, it's not more modern. There, there are fantasies of insatiability long before the modern period, indeed, in the ancient world. But the emphasis on it becomes modern. Um, The idea of cruising um, is much more prevalent today Mm -hmm. than 
uh, in the ancient world or in the middle, certainly in the Middle Ages. Well, you have the idea, but let's just say there is a certain approval or at least toleration of it in the modern period. So what I mm. partly what I wanted to do was also um, follow through with ancient like-mindedness, medieval transcendence and obligation uh, and uh, obsession. Uh, but that really takes us also into romantic period, the modern, the early modern, modern period, and then the um, insatiability. There's no hard and fast periodization here, but it does. The book does sort of move from ancient to modern. Mm-hmm. That's why I I uh, organized it that way. However, the chapter titles got changed around quite a bit (laughs) i can imagine yeah yeah while i was writing it so that um if you were surprised i i'd be interested in knowing what you had expected what well i mean nothing i'm not you know nothing not very well thought out but i assumed i would think i was going to see eros and amakitia and kind of Mm -hmm. like these terms i was yeah. So my first outline was um, a romantic love, mm-hmm. um, friendship, um, love of nature, mm-hmm. um, love, a universal love of mankind. Uh, but it it just was impossible because the reason it was it was impossible was because I kept repeating myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, friendship kept moving along the same tracks as romantic love. So I uh, I just would start out with the ancient world, move to the mid- Middle Ages, get to the modern, and then go back to the ancient world. <laughs> it just didn't work. I mean, it was boring. So that had to be scrapped. So in our periodization, though, I mean, so if we, if we think of like-mindedness, kind of the idea of um, – a, a, a oneness, a t- t- togetherness. There, you know that there's there's something that works in the ancient world. Does that still work? Is that still in force in our yes. modern era? Yes, I mean people are really talk, still talking about finding um, the um, the best friend who understands everything that you're thinking, who agrees, who's on the same page with you. Uh, with regards to everything, um, you don't need to talk because they understand. They don't need to talk because you understand. That is an ideal today. And actually, that chapter, I start with a modern TV program um, that... Um, uh, I've forgotten the name of it already, um, but um, enlightened, enlightened, yeah. where the protagonist really thinks she's found her soulmate, but she's disappointed in the end because the soulmate has her own agenda, and our protagonist realizes her agenda isn't the same as the soulmate's, and so they part, um, and so. But the uh, the fantasy mm-hmm. persists. 
the fantasy that I will find someone who, with whom I am just so perfectly in tune that um, we we will dance together through life. Uh, and indeed, musicians do find that. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've played in a group, uh, a band or a, a musical group, but that sense of harmony, mm-hmm. not just musical harmony, but that you're all working together toward the same goal. You understand one another. You are, you are in sync. That's a fantastic feeling. So no wonder people wish, and some people seem to actually find that in their daily lives. But yeah. it's, it, it is a very persistent fantasy. Well, that's the other thing with these fantasies, though, is even that they're never full time. You never always have this. There's something you can always strive for. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, you know, if there's a takeaway, if there's sort of a, um, is, this a is there a therapy embedded in this? The therapy embedded is don't feel terrible if the fantasy doesn't work every minute. Because, uh, you know, reality intrudes <laughs> and reality can change the fantasy and make it richer. It's okay, you know. You can also, none of these fantasies are um, in their own compartments. They flow into one another. It's not like the person who's looking for the like-minded other doesn't also have the fantasy at time or even at the same time of um, the uh, love as transcendence of this love needs nothing of the world or uh, that this love uh, I can't get enough of. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, these fantasies move together, they combine, and the full history of love has to be seen in the interbraiding of all the five fantasies. And even there, you don't have the full history. You've got uh, a good, a good uh, sketch with a lot of, the colors, but there's still more to be added. The way um, the the metaphors you're using to talk about it, and they use you know, it reminds me um, of another thing I wanted to discuss with you, which is your incredibly wide source material. Um, which, of you know, of course, we we're we're talking about classic tragedy, the the stories we all know. But I mean, you're, there is uh, somewhere, I don't know if it's the first image, but the first one that comes to mind is you have a New Yorker cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as I say, I wanted this, although it, isn't, it doesn't go from Buddha to Twitter, I wanted this to go from the ancient world to the modern. And I am a part of the modern world, and I'm writing to an audience that's part of the modern world. So I'm not only asking about what was historical, but where are we today? 
what kind of an environment are we living in today? And New York, that New Yorker cartoon is so perfect because it depicts a knight in armor with a sword, a damsel in a tower, surrounded, threatened by a dragon, and then it upsets our expectations <laughs> entirely because the knight says, um, before I rescue you, uh, what are your uh, financial goals? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How do you feel about kids? <laughs> so uh, that really turned out to be such a uh, wonderful image for me, a metaphor for me for the idea that we have these fantasies and that can be disrupted then by a cartoonist who <laughs> sees the who sees the humor in in um, you might say juxtaposing a modern um, realist um, position with a medieval romantic mm-hmm. uh, stance so. Um, that yes, I um I spent a <laughs> I spent a lot of time in this book. I read a lot of different things, and I left out a lot. Um, I had a whole chapter on Pocahontas and John Smith for a while, but um, it just didn't fit because I didn't know enough about uh, the Powhatan idea mm-hmm. of. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, well, that was so. I left that out. So I left out a lot. And I've got on my bookshelf all kinds of Jamestown narratives, and <laughs> I've got I. There's so much. I mean, everybody thinks about love, and everybody has written about love, and there's sort of nothing that doesn't touch on love. So it was a challenge to stay very focused on five different fantasies and leave it there. Well, this struck me every, it's all love too. You know, the way we feel about our families is love. We, as you write about our relationship with the divine is love. Yes. And then of course the, the eternal obsession with romantic love, sexual love. Yeah. I don't know how you would ever stop reading for this book. Well, right. Um, Luckily, my publisher said around 50,000 words. <laughs> well, that would be, uh, yeah, and, and to some degree, um, uh, as I continue to read, um, the themes continue to repeat themselves. So I felt okay, although I haven't included every source in um, this book. Uh, I've I've covered five major major fantasies. They are not the only ones that we have today, and um, so maybe uh, you know if I had if I had a publisher who said how about two hundred thousand words, I would have added a few more fantasies. But um, yeah, the, the important thing was to cover a lot of ground to read enough to know, okay, the next thing I read is going to fit in here or would have to go in a chapter that I haven't even begun, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
That's that sounds like a tough book to write, but fun. It seems like a lot of fun to research anyway. Absolutely. So yeah. much fun. I miss it already. <laughs> well, it sounds like you can do it again. It sounds like there there are places you can go. Um, and that's before I get to my very last question, which is basically that one. I wanted to just how I wanted to ask you a, a personal question you can opt out of, but was there something that really spoke to you? Was there some kind of, was there a place, a chapter where you really felt at home? You were like, this is my chapter. Yes. Uh, I really felt at home with the obsession chapter, mm. uh, which uh, really gets going with troubadours um, whom I just adore. Uh, and then the, as a matter of fact, I took some courses in Old Occitan so that I could read the troubadours in um, in the original. And I just loved their playfulness, their obsessive uh, stance, but also their poking fun at themselves. I absolutely uh, rejoiced in that kind of uh, both um, immersion and distancing that they were able um, to allow themselves. Um, it, it got a little murkier with the romantics. Poor Werther killing himself, you know, that he didn't poke fun at himself. No, they, no, they are utterly humorless. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, but but I, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, that chapter and and could have spent more time on it, but uh, yeah. Oh, right. This really felt at home. That was a place where, as you know, a late medieval, early modernist, that place really felt right to me too. Uh, like, yes, is that where you felt? Okay, I was like oh, I get this love. Okay, um, yeah, that makes sense. But it, I mean, it it it, it is all it is all a culture. I understand. This and you know this is a thing. Um, as I, I was, I clearly really enjoyed the book, but um, I, I kept thinking I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to read it. I was, <laughs> it's it it will speak to everyone. Someone you'll be able to find something that you find really uh, compelling and really truthful, and something that makes you kind of shake your head. Like this is a book that really speaks to Western culture. So well done. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a really lovely. All right. So what are you working on now? Because I don't think looking at your CV and knowing your, C- knowing your career as I do, I do not think it's nothing. I'm certain there's another book happening right now. Well, it isn't happening right now because I'm turning to a um, very scholarly paper that I'm hoping to give in Spoleto, Italy in the spring. Oh, may that happen. But when that... Uh, uh, but when I finish that scholarly paper, um, I, I, I'm going to turn to the emotions of old age, um, the emotions that people have about old people and the emotions that elderly people have. But it'll again be a history. So it's not just old age today or anything like that. But I'll start with, you know, Cicero. De Senectudine, and on from there. Uh, There's a lot of stuff on um, on old age embedded in um, poetry, in 
uh, classics like, for example, the Decameron. I just recently read the Decameron and found all kinds of interesting things in there uh, having to do with old people, um, witches, of course, um, and the whole fear of old ladies, ugliness and what that means, what wrinkles mean. I'm interested in mm-hmm. how this uh, has been mm-hmm. st- static, but also how it changes over time. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I love that. I'm um, I, I'm interested right now myself in senescence and the like. This idea of when um, disability and aging and the conflation <laughs> thereof. It's that's a fascinating topic. That'll be really fun. Um, also, probably tiny bit depressing but very depressing <laughs> yes, because you do have to talk about disease and death and uh yeah. so okay anyway yeah. i mean that is that's that's the that's the plan that's how it goes that's why we're here so, all right i cannot thank you enough for taking some time to talk to me today it's been um, a pleasure. thank you wonderful and i'm i will be in touch when to talk about the aging book as well so Keep me in mind. All right. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you.